following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time and a place for everything under heaven. Anything that we experience, anything that we do, war, peace, love, hate, joy, sorrow, there's a time for feasting and a time for fasting. And wisdom consists in knowing the appropriate time for these things, knowing when to engage in these various activities, when it's appropriate and godly to go about uh, and feeling these certain ways and saying certain things, and doing that which you're supposed to be doing. Now imagine you go to a party, and you have tons of delicious food. I'm thinking maybe a little bit about what we'll have after Sunday school today. And then as you leave, after having eaten all this food and enjoyed time with your friends, some people you know ask you outside, what are you doing? Don't you know that today is the anniversary of the greatest tragedy in our community's history. What are you doing having a celebration? Now, who would be right here? Would it be the people who are abrading you for having a party on the very day of some great national tragedy? Or would it be uh, you having a party in light of somebody's birthday or anniversary or whatever the occasion was that you were celebrating? Who's right, who's wrong, what's going on? There's all this confusion in such a scenario. And it hits on this this idea of there's a time for feasting and a time for fasting. There's a time for joy and a time for sorrow. And this is the kind of situation that Jesus uses today to teach us, to teach his disciples a valuable lesson about life in his kingdom, what he's been expounding upon in his ministry, what it looks like. Now that the kingdom of heaven is here, now that the king has arrived, now that salvation has come from heaven to Israel, what does life in this kingdom look like? What is appropriate for this situation? How should we act in the presence of the king? And what Jesus tells his disciples, and what he tells the disciples of John, his cousin, this is John the Baptist, Jesus says to them, life with Christ, life with me, is marked by joyous celebration and gradual spiritual growth. That's what we'll be uh, getting out of this text today, that life with Christ is marked preeminently with joyous celebration and gradual spiritual growth. We'll consider this under three headings today. Uh, The question of religious rigor or seriousness in verse 9, or verse 14, I'm sorry. And then the life of joyous celebration in verse 15. And then finally, the experience of gradual spiritual growth in verses 16 and 17. So we'll break down the text, as I said, in those three parts. The question, the life, and the experience. And that's what Jesus is expounding for his disciples as he shows them and the disciples of John that the life with Christ is marked by joyous celebration and gradual spiritual growth. So first, this question of religious rigor. We have here in verse 14 uh, a situation that's presented to us 
in this conversation, in this question, and then, um, and then really the setting from which Jesus can, can teach something significant about really a bigger issue. Look at verse 14 with me. The disciples of John, again, like I said, John the Baptist, came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast? And literally, it's fast so much, fast all the time, but your disciples do not fast, implying they don't fast at all. Uh, seek to remind you if you've been with us during the series through Matthew that back in Matthew chapter 4 we learned in verse 12 that John the Baptist has been imprisoned and really that was a catalyst for Christ uh, first retreating into the wilderness but then coming out into the public with his preaching ministry and so John's still in prison and again this is Jesus's cousin this is Jesus is close uh, compadre, his colleague in the ministry, and he's locked away. But his disciples uh, still have contact with him. And we know that because later on in chapter 11, they actually bring a question to Jesus from John the Baptist. But in the midst of this, do you think that John's students, that John's disciples would be in a celebratory mood? You know, I was thinking about this, and I really hope that if I get locked up, you all don't throw a party to celebrate. That would be a pretty undignified thing to do. And if I caught wind of it, I'd be, wow, now I know how they really thought of me. Um, but John the Baptist's disciples, his students, those in his flock, they loved him. And they didn't like, they didn't relish the idea that he was locked up in prison. And as, as they're trying to maintain their steadfastness, they're obviously mourning this situation They're taking up regular fasts. Perhaps like the Pharisees, they're fasting twice a week even, uh, regularly, um, seeking the Lord's help, intensifying their prayers, as we discussed when I preached through Matthew chapter 6. And as they're doing this, the Pharisees, who are always at this point trying to get at Jesus, trying to break up his, his little party, trying to disperse his disciples, the Pharisees see an opportunity. The Pharisees who had just confronted the disciples about why their master is the kind of guy that would sit with tax collectors and other sinners all the time, feasting with these kinds of people. These same Pharisees, I imagine, if we consider the situation in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel where we have a bit more detail about what's going on here, these Pharisees are seeding uh, uh, seeds, sowing seeds of dissension in the minds of John's disciples. You can imagine them saying, you know, we fast. We're serious religious people, but look at, look at that guy. Look at his church. Look at his flock. They never fast at all. They're always busy partying. What's up with that? And while John, uh, the Baptist's disciples then, they think, you know, that's actually a pretty good question. Why is that? But unlike the Pharisees, they don't go and attack the disciples. They don't address their question to Jesus' followers. They go right to Jesus. Now, why would they do that? Perhaps, in fact, I would say probably, because they respect him. That they give him the benefit of the doubt, and they're coming with a sincere question. Some commentators look at this text and will tell you that the, the disciples of John are actually no better than the Pharisees in this situation, but I don't think that's the case at all. Based on how Jesus responds to them with such tenderness and gentleness in answering their question, but also based on the fact that they address Jesus in the first place, and they're not going after the disciples like the Pharisees did. But something that we should, we should get from this whole situation one, one little application of this 
is, and we'll be discussing this in the adult Sunday school over the next couple of months as Mr. Colvin teaches through Thomas Brooks's book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. That's a mouthful. But one of the things we should get from this is that one of the chief strategies of our enemy, of the devil, the accuser, the adversary in our present age, is to get in between faithful brothers and to somehow cause dissension. This past week, I was reading about the history of Antioch. It's 180 years old uh, this fall. And much of the history is a, is a history of a struggling church, but a faithful church, a loving church, where the people are working hard side by side uh, to maintain a witness here uh, at this location and also in downtown Reedville for a period of years during Reconstruction. But there are some sad occasions in the life of this church where dissension crept in and where otherwise faithful brothers and sisters began fighting and bickering over little things and then not so little things. And it caused splits in the church. And my prayer for Antioch is that we would be on our guard against this strategy of Satan against societies of faithful people this strategy to get in and to break apart, to cause dissension. Let us cultivate hearts of love for one another here in our church, but also for those faithful churches around us. May we hold in high esteem and regard uh, those churches, none are perfect, but those churches which which hold out the gospel in truth. So we're all on the same team. But even beyond that, we all have the same Lord and we should have the same loves. You see, these disciples of John, they're not antagonists. They're friends of Jesus. And how should we treat our friends? We should treat them as Jesus treats them in this passage, as we shall see, with gentleness, with respect. And Jesus shows us how to answer such people. Indeed, we should should be enamored with our Lord, even as a, a wife would be enamored with a faithful husband and a godly man. We should look to him and say, wow, he's great. And then we should say, I want to be like that. So, their question, what do they ask? Why do we and the Pharisees fast so much, but your disciples don't fast? This is a question about religious observance and devotion. This is a question about how to live out the faithful, we might say Christian life, but the faithful God-fearing life. They've been listening, you know. They've been around. They know what Jesus' preaching ministry has been. They know the content of his teaching. And they remember what he said in Matthew chapter 6, that he didn't say, if you fast, he said, when you fast. That Jesus, this rabbi, assumes that his followers will fast. And yet they're observing him and they're observing this group and they're wondering, he said, when you fast, but I haven't seen them fast at all. Now, whether they did or they didn't, we don't know. But the record is, it is a case that Matthew hasn't recorded any fasting up to this point. And so they have a sincere question. What's the deal here? For what reason do your disciples not fast as much as we do, especially in light of the fact that you said that they would fast? This is a question about not just occasional religious observance, but also about customary religious observance. In Luke chapter 18, verse 12, we know that the Pharisees fasted twice a week, and as I said, perhaps John's uh, disciples did as well. And what this question does then, now that we've established really what it is and what it's about, what this question does in our narrative 
and in Christ's ministry is provide an occasion for Jesus, an occasion for our Lord to express his tender love and care for his disciples, even as he unpacks one feature about life in his kingdom. Insofar as we are sincerely obedient to Christ in our service, he will be tender and loving and careful with us. He's not rough. Indeed, what we see here is Jesus' expression of, of love for his little flock, his sheep. You see, we might read this question as something of an attack. Give some justification for their behavior. And Jesus does exactly that. He gives a very clear, very cogent, and convincing justification for why his disciples act the way they do. And it's because of his plan of discipleship with them. And he will be sure to justify and defend us whenever we're attacked or questioned. He will give us wisdom to speak from his word an answer that is clear, cogent, and convincing to those who ask us sincere questions. And he will give us the tools we need to defend ourselves when uh, malicious questions are fired our way. Do you believe that? Do you trust that Christ is faithful to provide these sorts of things? Because he promises it, and he gives an example of it right here. He pleads the cross on our behalf before Satan's accusations at the judgment throne of God, but he also, by word and spirit today, and right here in our daily lives and experience, speaks to us against our conscience, which so frequently will get riled up by the words of others. He speaks to us and assures us of his love, of his pardoning grace, even when our enemies and sometimes our friends trample our spirits underfoot, either purposefully or unintentionally. Do you see how great the mercy and the love of Christ is for you? Are you resting in Christ then you're resting in a Savior who loves you and who cares for you. So we've unpacked this question of religious rigor, the situation of those asking it, as well as the question itself and, and what that brings about in Christ's ministry. And now we can really look at the life of joyous celebration, the first thing that Jesus says in answer. Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom, literally this is the sons of the bridal chamber. It was a technical term describing groomsmen who were... Um, responsible for ensuring that the wedding and the wedding festivities went off successfully. You know, today, very, I've, I've met very few male wedding planners, but back then, the wedding planners and, and those who were in charge of everything were the groomsmen, were the friends, these sons of the bridal chamber, uh, the colleagues of the bridegroom. And, and Christ is, is using this picture of the wedding feast and wedding festivities uh, to describe the life of his disciples in his kingdom. That, and this is, this is one fundamentally, uh, a fundamental picture, I should say, of the Christian life. This is what it's all about. Life with Christ is a wedding feast. If we look forward in the New Testament, right at the very end, in Revelation chapter 19, isn't that how it's described? The great, great wedding supper of the Lamb? And we'll talk a bit more about that. 
But in this picture, Christ is the bridegroom. This is a characterization that John the Baptist himself has used and and uses in John chapter 3, verse 29. And in fact, he describes himself as an attendant to the bridegroom. Now, his function is a bit different. He uses a different word. He's not a son of the bridal chamber, but rather he's the one that brings the bride to the bridegroom and presents her to him. This is back before you would have uh, our custom of the father walking his daughter down the aisle. This is, this is really the best man of, of, the, uh, of the bridegroom, of, of the groom, bringing the bride to him. And that's how John the Baptist uh, understood himself and his ministry. And Christ's disciples then are the other attendants, the other groomsmen. These disciples being groomsmen, what does that say about them and about their position in the kingdom? This is, they are nobles. This is an ennobling description, isn't it? That they're, they're not small potatoes. And they're not servants. They're not butlers. They're, they're, the, they're the inner circle. They're the best friends. And this is indicative not only of their calling and of their characterization, but of our calling as Christians. We are co-laborers with God, Paul says. What that means is we are in it with him, putting together this great party, this great celebration of God's dominion uh, as far as his creation is found. Now, this wedding feast, it's a celebratory occasion, and this is the nature of the salvation Christ offers. Christ is the bridegroom, the disciples in his kingdom are the groomsmen, and the, the salvation that Christ offers when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This, uh, this salvation that he's brought from heaven, which has given him his name, Jesus, it's a celebratory salvation. This is no dour thing. I think too, too many serious-minded Christians and, and Reformed believers go about life and you'd think that, that they were on their way to jail or something. They seem so miserable. But brothers and sisters, the preeminent note of our lives as believers is one of celebration and joy and rejoicing. And that's what Jesus is, is saying and characterizing it as a wedding feast. But perhaps you're here today and you don't, you don't know that you're in a wedding party. You don't know that you've showed up to this great celebration. Well, the invitation is set before you. The table is set before you. The invitation, the summons has gone out. The king's royal edict has come forth. And it's no slavish command. Rather, it is a gracious invitation to a wedding. And that is what Christ offers. That is what God offers in Christ Jesus. Have you accepted that invitation? Have you received it in faith? Are you eager to come into his presence? Well, then come through the shed blood of Christ, our Savior, and take for yourself a seat at his, at his table, being forgiven of your sins, being reconciled to God, being given a place of honor and a function, a role to fulfill that will be not burdensome but life-giving. The disciples' situation then calls for feasting, not yet fasting. Notice what Jesus is doing here when he says the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What he first does here is he makes an argument to the absurd. 
It, it would be crazy to go to a wedding party and then not to eat anything. It would be insane to show up at a wedding and say, hey, I'm here and I'm happy for you, but you know, I need to fast today. No, you wouldn't go to the wedding if that was the case. Fasting, that's appropriate for a funeral. And one day, Jesus will be taken away from his disciples. That is, he will die. His blood shall be shed. We know for the forgiveness of sins. But that will be a solemn and a dark day. And on that day, it will be appropriate to fast. But not yet. The morning will come in the Christian life. It's not all fun and games, mind you. But right now, Jesus is saying, I am with them. They are in my presence. Now is not the time for fasting. Now is the season fit for feasting. But what about now? As disciples with his spirit, he's died and he's risen again from the grave. He's been resurrected and he has ascended up into heaven and his spirit has fallen down upon the church. What now? Is it appropriate for us to fast? Should we fast? How do we explain that? If he's living and he's reigning on high, well, should we at all ever fast? In our Statement of belief here at Antioch, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 5, we are told that it is appropriate to fast on certain occasions. And behind that statement in our statement of faith is a biblical justification, not only from Matthew 6, where Jesus says, when you fast, but also from this text, where he says, then they will fast. And perhaps most convincingly on this point, because there's a lot of historical, uh, there are many historical features to all of this. In Acts chapter 14, well after the ascension and Pentecost, what do we find the followers of Christ doing? They are fasting in Acts 14, verse 23. And we take that model, that approved example from Scripture, and we can be confident then that we too are to fast on certain occasions as we are able. Indeed, fasting, and I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but fasting is a good work. As our statement of faith, chapter 16, puts it, it's a good work which will bear forth fruitful evidence in our lives of a true and living faith. It's a good work done in the power of the Holy Spirit, not done on our own power. It's a good work unable to be performed rightly by the unregenerate, including, in our text, the Pharisees. They fast twice a week, but it doesn't do them any good because they're doing it for social advancement, as we know from Matthew 6. They're doing it for their, their own benefit. But something I will say about fasting here, as it relates to our text, fasting is not fit for the Lord's day. Fasting is not appropriate, I would say, on that day which God has set aside for us to come together with rejoicing, to celebrate the resurrection. We don't come into the Lord's presence with thanksgiving uh, flowing up from our hearts and out of our mouths and saying, but I'm mourning, Lord, and I'm fasting today. Fasting is not for this festive day of rest, which we enjoy, this celebratory day of worship. Rather, it's for those times when either because of something that's happening in our lives or in our nation or in our church, um, 
or because of some great effort we're putting forth for the advancement of the gospel, it's for those times when we need to intensify our praying, to deny ourselves and to bring to the Lord an urgent plea made all the more urgent by a need, a physical need uh, for food or drink. And of course, in fasting, we do not destroy our bodies. We discipline our bodies. And so it's really not appropriate to fast for more than a day uh, in, in order to intensify your prayers. Enough about fasting. How do the disciples relate to this act of religious devotion right here in our text? How do they, at that point in time, um, relate to this good but strenuous work? This is where I want to unpack the experience of gradual spiritual growth from verses 16 and 17. In In this experience of his disciples, Jesus will give two pictures of his regard for their good, for their spiritual condition, and then we'll see really... uh, what the end goal is in that last clause, that the disciples, you and I, Christ is concerned to preserve us that we might grow over time and not be overwhelmed at the start of the Christian life. So first, look at verse 16 with me. Jesus begins with this illustration. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Literally, um, nobody patches a patch, a new patch, on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. And then the second illustration in verse 17, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins will burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins will be ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved or conserved by doing that, by the right handling. Back in verse 15, Jesus used an illustration drawn from an extraordinary occasion, from what we might call special time. And here in verses 16 and 17, he now uses two complementary illustrations drawn from normal, everyday time. Boys and girls, aren't you always you know, taking out the old wineskin made from a dead goat and pouring wine into it every day? Isn't that something that you do in your regular? No? No. I, Caleb's saying no. It's normal for them back then. It's not normal for us. And it was normal in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see a, a variety of descriptions of, of wineskins bursting. The Gibeonites, when they come and they, they fool David, uh, or uh, they, fool, yeah, they fool David in order not to be destroyed, uh, they say, or not David, Joshua, they say, um, look, our wineskins are old and our garments are torn. This is something everybody would recognize. And Elihu in Job, uh, toward the end, when he, when he comes out the gate uh, fast and furious, we might say, how does he describe his own feeling, his sensation of needing to, to speak? He says, I'm, I'm about to burst like a new wineskin full of new wine. I need to vent. See, everybody would know exactly what Jesus is talking about, even though we can't really get it, unless unless you like living like an ancient Israelite, in which case, okay, good for you. But the point I'm trying to make here is whereas the wedding is a special kind of once-in-a-lifetime deal for someone, the wineskins and the old garment thing, that's everyday life. And Jesus is condescending, uh, relating a profound spiritual truth and mystery that God has a regard for his people, a special, knowledgeable, uh, compassionate regard for his people. And how does he describe it using everyday language? Um, 
The point of the correlation here in this issue is how appropriately to handle something as a wise steward, as a, uh, as a considerate caretaker of things. Jesus cares for his disciples. He does not want to break them under the severity of austere religious devotion beyond what they can handle. If you were to start a new workout program, uh, I would imagine, now I've never had a personal trainer, but I would imagine a good personal trainer would run a diagnostic first, would put you through some paces, and then based on your performance, would make for you a plan of training such that you wouldn't be overwhelmed. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take, you know, someone who's never worked out a day in their life and then say, all right, we're going to start bench pressing 250 pounds. We're going to start with your body weight or whatever right off the bat. No, you'd start here and work your way up. Actually, I should do this for you. You start here and you would work your way up over time. There'd be a gradual improvement and, and a good physical therapist or a good uh, uh, personal trainer would know how to, to bring you through that without destroying your body, without causing more pain, which then results in, um, uh, or more destruction, more injury, which then results in, in, in setbacks and, and atrophy. See, Jesus is coming to us, to his disciples, wanting us to grow in godliness and in strength. He doesn't want us to be discouraged and destroyed and then laid out such that we can never progress. And that's the point he's making when he uses these illustrations of the old garment that needs patching up and the, the old wineskins, which really are not suitable for new wine. A new patch will stress out that old garment and cause it to be broken beyond repair. And new wine will ruin the old wineskins. Jesus is about conserving the old garment and the old wineskins. And that's the point we're going to make in just a second. To use another illustration, um, one of my hobbies is building guitars. And I have a number of specialty tools that I keep. And I love these tools. They're fantastic. Some of them are pretty expensive. And most of them are delicate. Uh, I can't just pick up um, one, of, one of these specialty luthier guitars or, or luthier tools and use it as a hammer. Uh, even like I could do maybe with, uh, you know, the opposite end of a screwdriver, which maybe I've done a few times when I don't know where my hammer is. But we take care of those things that are useful to us and that we cherish. Jesus is wise, loving, and careful in how he stewards the hearts of his disciples. He's a good king. He's not going to grind them to the bone. King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, what did he do that caused the destruction of the kingdom, the, the, the schism between north and south. He worked his people to the bone. Jesus is not a king like that. Christ's point here, and perhaps you've heard this about new wineskins and all of that kind of stuff. Christ's point here is not to say that he's come to throw out the old and to bring in the new. In fact, that would actually read his illustration precisely backwards. The old things here relate to his followers. The new patch and the new wine relate to things that they can't yet handle. Interestingly, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 10 to 12, uses 
two things to describe the people of Israel. He uses a garment, an old waistband, and he uses wine vessels. Perhaps Jesus is drawing on that Old Testament background as he's now talking about wineskins and garments. He's talking about the people of God. But even if he's not drawing on that particular point from Jeremiah, uh, the point I'm making still stands. He's using everyday familiar illustrations to talk about how he cares for his people. And that brings us to this last point from the very last clause of our passage. And both are preserved. Notice Jesus' intention, the goal of the wise householder, of the good king, is to preserve those things in his care. This interpretation that I've been making, it's borne out here by what Jesus says. Therefore, both are preserved. At this point, Christ makes clear that we shouldn't understand him to be downplaying or destroying the old things that he's been talking about. He's not criticizing the Pharisees for being old-fashioned. He's criticizing their, uh, their auster- the idea that their austerity, their severity, their advancement in religious devotion should be dumped on these fishermen and tax collectors and normal everyday guys that he's just called to himself and brought into his kingdom. So what does this tell us about spiritual growth? It's that it's gradual and it's by God's means namely word, prayer, and sacrament. But also, occasional things, when appropriate, like fasting, vows, oaths, special works and deeds of service and mercy as we grow in grace and godliness, these things have their place. Jesus doesn't deny that. But what he's saying is, now's not the right time for that. They're not ready for it. I'm still here with them. Now is a season for feasting. The Lord's Supper, which we'll be observing today, and I didn't plan this out. This just happened to be the week as we go through Matthew's gospel that this text landed. It was on a communion week, and I'm preaching the communion service today. This supper, which God has given to us through Christ, is both a means of grace and of strengthening in the Christian life and an act of religious devotion that we grow into as we are able to do certain things, namely to discern the body, examine ourselves, and intentionally use the table to to take advantage of this sacrament to improve upon our baptism. John 16, 12, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And boys and girls, as your parents have been explaining to you, I'm sure, as I explained to you when you ask, You're not ready yet for the table until you can examine yourself and your standing with God and until you can discern the body and tell me, okay, what happens in the Lord's Supper? Until you can say to the elders of this church, I want to take the Lord's Supper because and give a biblical answer to improve upon your baptism, to be strengthened in your faith, to be nourished and nurtured on Christ in your spirit. Once you can intelligently give those answers as your own answers, laying hold of Christ yourself, then you will be brought to this table as a means of grace for you. Until that time, it's a means of grace for you by sight, as you observe what's going on and as you consider what it is we're doing. So, that brings me back to timing. What time are we in today? I don't mean, you know, what time is it? How long have I been going in the sermon? 
But what is the nature of the time that we have today? Yes, there are sorrows, there are occasions for fasting, there are times when we should fast to grow in grace and godliness, but the Christian life is preeminently one of faith, hope, and love, of celebration, and not of sorrow. You see, life with Christ, as we've seen in our text today, is marked by joyous celebration like a wedding feast and gradual spiritual growth. When you become a Christian, particularly if you do so in adulthood, there is a radical moral change that takes place, a radical spiritual rebirth, which should have immediate ramifications on your life. But over time, you will grow into the fullness of reflecting uh, the righteousness of Christ. And it is the case that in whatever we're occupied, our knowledge increases, our tastes change, we mature, we grow into certain things. And so it is in the Christian life. As we come to the table this morning, we enact this reality. We live it out by Christ's institution as both a solemn remembrance of his death and a forward-looking anticipation to Revelation 19, to the great wedding supper of the Lamb, to which all are invited to be guests if they have but faith, which is itself a gift of God's grace. Let us stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And we do come into your presence with gladness. We come with rejoicing, recognizing what it is you have done for us. You have loved us from before the foundations of the earth were laid. You have called us to come after you as followers, as disciples, even as servants, but preeminently as sons and daughters to be seated at your table, to be guests of honor, to be friends rejoicing with our best friend. Lord, we pray now that you would impress these truths on our hearts and that we would live lives of joy and gladness, that you would give us wisdom to know when it is appropriate to mourn in sorrow for sin and when it is appropriate to jump up and down with joy and laughter, recognizing your deliverance and salvation in Christ. We pray now for your spirit to accompany us to the table that this too might be an effectual means of grace to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.